It's the Saint Victory Podcast. I'm Josh Saint Marie, but this isn't just the Saint Marie Podcast. It's the Saint Victory Podcast. Here with me, Victor, my man. How's it going? I'm doing well. Had a great weekend. A lot of football. Uh, not too happy about the lockout, but I guess we'll have to just deal with it. Did you take advantage of the Titans' bye week? Uh, not particularly. I had a couple of really uh, stressful fantasy matchup so I was still glued to the TV all of Sunday but yeah it was nice not having to watch Tannehill throw to uh, the receiving core that we have at the moment this week yeah this is a crunch time when it comes to those fantasy football matchups I had I had a team that I think is basically in the playoffs but you never want to lose this time of year and I got throttled by one of the worst Mm. teams in the league Dang. Granted, they, they have Jonathan Taylor, and uh, my, <laughs> my, my first pick was Travis Kelsey, who put up an absolute dud. It basically, for me, was Travis Kelsey versus uh, Noah Fant, and tonight he had Cole Beasley, and Fant outscored Kelsey. So I thought it was going to oh, be pretty wow. 50-50 between Beasley and Fant trying to stop Kelsey, but Chief, Chiefs didn't – their offense didn't show up last night. But maybe we'll talk to that. i getting ahead of myself. But just to put you into my mental space right now. So first, we're recording on the Patriots game day. The last time we did it, it was in the middle of a Patriots game. But this time, it's still in the morning. The Patriots play tonight. So I'm I'm a pretty big nervous wreck right now. It's a huge game. They play the Bills. So keep that in mind. Now also, at the same time, I'm riding extremely high emotionally from the craziest F1 race of the craziest F1 season of all time. So when I say the craziest race, it was insane. Even on top of all that, at the same time, I'm also riding an all-time low because the MLB is dead right now. It doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. And so for the first time, really, since I have a reliable memory, the MLB has disappeared from my life. I mean, Victor, my brain is all over the place right now. I'm barely holding it together. Yeah, I mean, this time of year, especially the holiday season and everything going on in sports, there's just there's a lot to keep up with. And I'll be honest, it's so strange just having uh, no player profile pictures on MLB.com, no articles to read about players on MLB.com. This is this is really, really strange times right now. Now, before the podcast started, I messaged Victor the link to our uh, where we record our podcast and Victor has changed his profile picture to the the same picture all the MLB players have but with a very cruel twist I would say he's got three creepy lines on it that make this smile like smiley face I was like what is going on here I thought it was pretty funny I have to admit it was funny but at the same time very creepy yeah I I thought it, it, it looked creepy but I wanted to be a little more creative than everyone else just making it the regular logo I definitely give you points for your creativity there. But why don't we start with baseball? This episode, we're going to go and return to our normal format. Last week, we deviated a little bit because it was such a crazy week in the MLB. But now, since the MLB really only had a half week, things have died down a little bit. So we're going to start with the MLB. Then we're going to transfer into the NFL. I might have some college football mixed in there. Just a little spoiler there. And I also might have a sort of uh, game where we're going to rank something in the NFL. So without further ado, let's start with the MLB. Victor, do you have any takeaways from this last week in the MLB? 
Yeah, there are quite a few contracts that we missed out on um, from recording last week that took place over the past few days. Uh, so I'll start with Corey Seager going to the Rangers. Uh, that wasn't part of our grading the Rangers offseason thus far last week, but uh, I did drop, I think, maybe even a day or two after we recorded. Um, my question would be, does this make the Rangers like good? Like, are they going to compete for a postseason spot? Because looking at their lineup, it still appears as though their outfield has multiple holes in it. I don't trust any of Adolis Garcia, Leody Tavares. Cole Calhoun um, likely has a solid floor, but no upside. We don't know what Willie Calhoun is. I don't think Nate Lowe is very good. I don't think their catching situation is that good. Although Jonah Heim is a very good defender. He had a 60-weighted runs, created plus. And the rotation still looks pretty bad. Um, so I think even though they were able to add Corey Seager, they were able to add Marcus Semi and John Gray. I still kind of think this team is going to win like 77 games this season. You are dead on there. I think the key thing for them is the rotation. I'm just looking at the rotation now. I, I couldn't order it if I tried. I think it's safe to say that John Gray is their ace, but he obviously isn't an ace not at least how he's performed so far in his career. Could he become an ace? Sure, maybe. But after that, I don't think there that you can say this is their second, this is their third, this is their fourth, this is their fifth pitcher. It's all a bunch of fives, maybe. At best, maybe a bunch of fours in a rotation. It's Dane Dunning, Taylor Hearn, AJ Alexi, Spencer Howard. Spencer Howard, someone who used to be regarded as someone with a tremendous ceiling. I think a lot of people have cooled on him since his prospect days, but I don't know. I don't know if you can win with rotation like that. They definitely still are missing a few pieces. And do you think they go and look for even more coming out of the lockout? Yeah, I think once the lockout ends, they're going to be a team that's going to be in the corner outfield market. And luckily for them, there still seems to be a lot of options in the corner outfield. Um, maybe a Michael Conforto, a Jorge Soler, Kyle Schwarber, say a Suzuki, um, whoever, whatever route you want to go through. So I think they'll be in that market. And the, the starting pitching market seems a little more bare than the outfield market. So I'm not sure if they'll be able to make too many upgrades on that end of, this, uh, of their team. I think you're probably right. I mean, we're down to like Clayton Kershaw and Carlos Rodon, two lefties mm -hmm. with injury problems and histories. I can't, who else am I missing? Are there other top free agents that are pitchers? Um, none that immediately come to mind to me. There might be a couple out there, but it's definitely thinning out. One other thing um, that I wanted to mention about this deal, though, was I heard that the Dodgers offer for Corey Seager was nowhere near what the Rangers ended up paying him. Now, I wanted to ask you, is that because the Dodgers having a close eye, knowing the player Corey Seager is, knowing his injury history, look at Seager and say he's not worth it? Or were the Dodgers never really making a play for him and have a lot of faith in someone maybe like Gavin Lux? to replace Seager in that lineup? My gut would tell me that they didn't think Corey Seager was valued at this contract, at least to their team. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily blame them if that was their view, given his injury history, um, his defensive inability, and um, the, con the length of this contract. Andrew Friedman seems like a... Uh, um, 
a person who does not want to give out those types of long-term deals. Uh, they rebuffed giving Bryce Harper the decade-plus-long deal that he wanted. So I think this is a part of their approach as a team to not give out those types of super, super long contracts. And while it might make sense for the Dodgers, who um, they're able to spend a lot of money but prefer doing it on short-term deals, I think this is still a good contract for the Rangers just because it gives them a little legitimacy. It gives them a player that they can hang their hat on for the next eight to 10 years, however long Corey Seager is a worthwhile player. So I think it's one of those situations where it might not make as much sense for the Dodgers to match as it makes sense for the Rangers to go the extra mile. And even if you aren't a huge fan of Corey Seager, and I think I might consider myself in that in that group, I have to admit the Rangers middle infield is awesome. Simeon and Seager is a great combo, and that's one of the most important spots on the field. So I can't blame them for, for paying for him. They have the money. The Rangers are a team that's actually a pretty big market. People seem to forget that there are kind of some takes of like where are the Rangers getting all this money. The Rangers have always had this money. Mm-hmm. Maybe, probably, good move for the Rangers. I would be a little concerned, though, in the fact that the Dodgers didn't make a push for him. I think you make a good point, though, that it's totally different valuations for both teams. Now, transferring to my first MLB takeaway, I am going to go with the buzzer beating deal that happened minutes before midnight. And of course, I was going to bring it up. It's the Red Sox. They trade Hunter Renfro for JBJ and two prospects in the Brewers system. And it comes out that not only did they trade for JBJ, they're also paying JBJ's, I think you can say at this point, absurdly high contract. And most of my Twitter feed hated this deal. And so, I already have spent a lot of time defending this in the SP streamer discord, which if you're not a member of what are you doing? It's a great time, but I, mm-hmm. I just have to regurgitate some of my, some of my takes there because it, this needs to be out in the public. I think it was a strong deal for the Red Sox. So I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through all the most common things I was hearing from the detractors of the Detroit of the trade. So the first thing I heard them saying, JBJ sucks at offense. Honestly, I can't debate that. He's not a great offensive player. He's always been a defensive first player. That's true. That's true. I give it to you. Not great at offense. Not anywhere near what Hunter Renfro can produce at offense. But I don't believe JBJ was the actual centerpiece of this deal. I think that was Alex Benellis, who had a 1.014 OPS in his first year at single A. He's a strong prospect. The Red Sox got another prospect. I think you can make an argument that both prospects were more important to the deal than JBJ was. And just to like further emphasize that, the Red Sox have been strongly linked to both uh, Seiya Suzuki and Kyle Schwarber, who are corner outfielders who can also DH. But we've been saying it's kind of strange. The Red Sox already have the DH filled. They don't really have a spot for J.D. Martinez, who doesn't like to be in the field. Bobby Dalback is also better at DH. So it's kind of strange that the Red Sox are pushing for DHs. But moving Renfro makes the interest in Suzuki and the interest in Schwarber make a whole lot of sense. And I think it is very likely that the Red Sox fill that outfield spot with a free agent and not with JBJ. I think they took on the JBJ contract to get those prospects. And as a bonus, JBJ great at defense. That's something the Red Sox struggled with all of last year. I've been bemoaning it forever. I think he can slot into the outfield and key defensive moments in a game. So from that standpoint, 
I think it makes a lot of sense to go with JBJ. Now, another thing I was hearing people say, Benelis, the people that were acknowledging Benelis is a key part of the, of the trade. He plays third base where the Red Sox have, according to Twitter, a very strong depth chart at third base. They have Devers at third. Dahlback is traditionally a third baseman. And one of their best prospects, Blaze Jordan, plays third base. I don't get this one at all. I don't understand this criticism. I don't think you can have too much depth at one position in an org. I mean, Victor, just look at your team. The Rays have the most middle infielders I've ever seen, and they have no problem with that. Heim comes from that organization, so he obviously is going to have a similar philosophy. And even so, I don't really know what depth we're talking about. Blaze Jordan is in single A. Benelis, as I already said, is a single A level player. Dahlback has barely played third base in the majors. Who knows if he can even man the position now. Endeavors is coming up to a point where the Red Sox need to get him on a contract extension and have failed to do so thus far. So if anything, the Red Sox should be looking to address third base. They should be looking to have backup plans if Devers should leave because those other options are far away. And like I'm saying, he's in single A. Who's to say he can't develop another position? People forget Mookie Betts, for example, in the Red Sox organization, second baseman, and is now one of the best outfielders in the entire league, a platinum glove award winner in right field. So people change positions all the time. I don't get that argument at all. Now, the one final thing I was hearing a lot of is, yes, JBJ is good at defense. And he, yes, he's better at defense than Renfro, but Renfro himself was good at defense. No, that needs to end. It was not true. He is not good at defense. He, and I, I think this is a very fair comparison. This is the comparison I made in our Discord. Renfro is to defense as Javi Baez is to hitting. Everything he does is about creating highlights. If you only see the highlights, you're left amazed. But if you see all the other plays, you start to have questions. Renfro always trying to make the big throw, constantly overthrowing the person or throwing to a base. They shouldn't be allowing another player to advance. He's uh, taking aggressive angles at balls that lead him to kneeing the ball over the fence and key pivotal playoff games and gets bailed out by a rule. I mean, this guy's defense is not everything it's cracked up to be. I'm not going to tell you he's a bad defender, but what I will say is he's nowhere near JBJ. And so I think putting all that together, I think the trade makes sense for the Red Sox. I'm not saying it's an amazing trade, but it definitely isn't this horrible trade that everyone was questioning on Twitter. Sorry, I'm now off my soapbox. I think generally... I am not that big of a fan of this trade for the Red Sox. Um, I, I think JBJ could have a situational role. I think maybe not really a platoon, but he could split time with Kike Hernandez in center field or some sort of arrangement like that. He could have a role. But um, in terms of the prospects, I'm not a big Benalis guy. Um, he did not have a very good junior year um, at Louisville, I believe. I think he went to Louisville, um, had a hamate bone injury, but um, a lot of the reports uh, from a lot of scouts, uh, particularly Eric Loggenhagen, project him to be more of a situational platoon corner infielder who might have to move off of third base because of how big and slow he is. So I'm not really into Benelis. Um, the other prospect they got, David Hamilton, hasn't shown the ability to hit much. So I think the return... While it kind of makes sense uh, if you're trying to replace Renfro with a better player. So from that standpoint, I think it does make sense. Um, I'm not sure I would have done this deal if I were the Red Sox. And as for the Brewers, um, they 
they get a bat to replace what uh, obviously Garcia provided last year. They're downgrading defense, obviously, with Garcia being a superior defender to Renfro. And they get to clear some money with um, uh, Bradley's contract, which might be the best part of the deal for for them. So I think in general, it's not a horrible deal for either side. I don't think it's that huge of a miss. Hunter Renfro is likely a 1.5 to 2 win player, which is nice to have, but not a necessity. Um, so I think some people were overreacting, certainly to the deal, but I'm I'm not a big fan personally. And I also should probably mention that I believe Renfro was set to get around $7.6 million in arbitration, which he may not be worth that much money. So I think the Red Sox were looking to move off him. I think I think for sure they were looking to move off him. I don't know if they were looking to get JBJ back. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really not sure about that part, but I think it's starting to make sense. This is why they've been pushing for Suzuki. This is why they've been pushing for Schwarber. They can Indeed. both play there. So. I don't know. I think the trade makes sense. If you don't like it, I guess I can get that. But the people saying a horrible trade doesn't even make sense. Everything Heim does makes sense. It just doesn't make sense to us because Heim is on another level. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Victor, do you have anything else from this week in the MLB? Yes. Uh, so there were two, two other pretty big signings, over $100 million committed to Javier Baez, a former uh, MVP runner-up, and Robbie Ray, the reigning AL Cy Young Award winner. Baez to the Tigers, Ray to the Mariners. I think these are – I don't love either of these moves to to start with. I think Baez's volatility with the strikeouts, with the lack of walks, uh, with the dependency of on athleticism for his production, I think he's the type of player who won't age very well unless he – has some sort of magical change to his approach, but we usually don't see those types of changes from players this late in their careers. So I think um, if I were the Tigers, I would have rather gone and give given um, Carlos Correa 10 years. I have a lot more trust in his ability to be a productive player down the road. Obviously he has the injuries that Baez doesn't, but I think his on-field product will be much better five years from now than Baez's will be. And then for Robbie Ray, I think, that um, I know this is a point that Eno Saris makes on his podcast a lot. Command comes and goes a lot more than stuff changes. So uh, the one, the big difference between Robbie Ray this year and Robbie Ray, Robbie Ray in the past was his ability to locate his fastball and throw strikes, which he's never really been able to do before. And from the research that um, Eno and others have had have um, gone through. Uh, the ability to locate pitches tends to fluctuate more year to year um, than your the quality of your pitches. So I think Robbie Ray could be someone who uh, sees some regression based off of not having pristine command throughout the year the way that he was able to have in 2021. So um, it's not a horrible contract on either side. I think the Tigers did need to make some sort of big move, and Baez does accomplish that. They won't be having Willie Castro playing shortstop anymore or the cast of characters they've had the past couple of seasons. But yeah, I don't think it's a great contract. And I don't think the Ray contract is great either. I would have preferred Gosman or even Marcus Stroman and what he got. I was just about to ask you if this means that you were firmly on the Blue Jays side in the decision of going for Gosman instead of Ray, because it seems like with the contract Ray got, they probably had a choice whether Mm -hmm. they wanted Ray or Gosman and they chose Gosman. So it seems like you agree with that. Yeah, I probably would have sided, or not probably, I would have sided with Gosman. I just have a little more trust in 
his splitter over Ray's slider. And I have a little more trust in his ability to locate the fastball than Ray has just given their career track records. I, I agree with you. And then I also agree with your assessment of the Javi Baez deal. I wonder, though, do you think it's possible that the Tigers are trying to copy what the Rangers have just done and look to get another piece for the middle infield? I haven't seen very many people talking about it. I haven't heard rumors, but I think they probably could still go for it if they wanted. Looking for either Correa or Story would be the most logical fit for them. I think the rumors early in the offseason were that the Tigers didn't want to give out uh, the nine 10-year contracts that guys like Seager and Correa were looking for. So I think that pairing would be fairly unlikely. But I do think that getting Trevor Story could make some more sense for them on a five or six year deal, uh, put him or Javi at second base and have uh, the type of dynamic middle infield that a lot of winning teams have. I couldn't help but notice that you've talked about all these big trades and you've left off perhaps the biggest or sorry, not trades, but free agent signings. The Red Sox signed Rich Hill and James Paxton, Victor. I mean, come on, let's go. It's now an entire rotation of lefties with elbow problems. It's so great. I think this means we're probably also getting Kershaw and Radon. It just makes total sense. The whole rotation will look the same way. Just Spider-Man meme pointing at each other. Are you a lefty that's elbow hurts all the time? Yes. Then join the Red Sox. It's, it's great. To be fair to Radon, his issues are the shoulder, not the elbow at the moment. But yeah, that, that would be quite the rotation. When is Paxton even pitching though? Cause he had Tommy John in like April of last year. I do not know for sure. That would, that would probably mean he's out for opening day. I haven't heard even since the, the uh, uh, acquisition, anyone saying he was going to slot into that rotation on opening day. So I think they know he's not going to be available then, but he's a guy that's good when he's healthy. Uh, the question is, can he pitch? I think he, what he, did he get one inning? Did he even get a full inning last season? Um, I think he got hurt in the second inning of his first start. I'll have to look that up again, but I do remember it was very, very, very early into the season. So, I mean, that's obviously concerning. The fact that that's in play, that when you're talking about all the possible outcomes Paxton could have, that we've literally seen him get injured in the second inning of an, of an entire season. So I don't know about it, but I know is Rich this... Hill will be fine, but I know Rich Hill will get injured. Like it's like Paxton is like, he could be healthy. I guess he's had healthy season. I don't think Rich Hill's ever had a healthy season. That guy will get a blister or do something at some point. It, I mean, ugh. I don't think Paxton has ever gone through a season without getting injured. Just looking at his uh, fan graphs page, his most starts in a season was 29. Even better. (laughs) (laughs) Does this end the Garrett Whitlock, Tanner Houck starting in the rotation dream? I still have the dream. I think Whitlock probably has always made more sense in in the um, bullpen. I still am holding out hope that Connor Siebold could be in the rotation. I think it's not unlikely that all these guys get chances. One thing I was um, taking a guess that might happen is the Red Sox go to a six-man rotation. Mm. You just look at the arms they have, and there's health concerns for all of them. I, I mean, maybe arguably the most reliable is either – I don't even know. Is it Pavetta or is it Evaldi who both have had 
has have missed times for injuries. Pavetta has like been demoted before, even for performance problems. So mm. it's a very unreliable rotation, but I think that means a lot of people are going to get a lot of opportunities. So I think from an opening day standpoint, I don't, I don't think there's any chance Whitlock's in the rotation, but could we be forced to maybe have to make him some sort of like three, three to five innings guy, similar to what the Rays were doing with, um, was it Rasmussen? Yes. Rasmussen was pitching about four to five innings every start. Yeah. So if the Red Sox are forced to do something like that with Whitlock, I think that that makes a lot of sense. So <laughs> it, I mean, we're relying on Michael Waka to fill in, fill in innings when these guys get injured. So oh, there the was off one season is a uh, lot. This is why I'm so adamantly defending the JBJ deal, Victor, is because uh -huh. the rest of the Red Sox moves have been extremely underwhelming. Yeah, I mean, the JBJ deal compared to signing Michael Waka, definitely preferable. Uh, there is one more contract that I did want to uh, touch on uh, was the Marcus Stroman deal. He only got three years. It was a higher average annual value than Gosman or Ray, but um, three years opt out after two years, I believe, going to the Cubs, which was also very interesting. Um, my, my general um, reaction to this was, surprised that he didn't get a five-year contract in the range of Gosman and Ray. It seemed as though this whole offseason people were comparing the three, uh, depending on what kind of preferences you have, whether it's strikeouts, whether it's stuff, whether it's ground balls, whether it's a uh, number of pitches. These were the three guys who people were comparing. And it seemed as though they were all going to get similar contracts, but it appears as though Marcus Stroman, either through his own volition or uh, because the market um, dictated he's not going to get a five-year contract. He's going to enter free agency again in the next two or three years. And maybe it works out for him, but I'm not sure Stroman's the type of pitcher who's ever really going to get uh, the, the type of long-term big money uh, commitment that a pitcher like Kevin Gosman or Robbie Ray, or even in the past Zach Wheeler got when they were free agents. So I'm a little surprised that he didn't take or wasn't able to receive the opportunity to get a five-year deal this offseason. I kind of feel bad for the guy because he seems like someone who's perennial, perennially, whoa, what's the word I'm looking for? It seems like a guy that is always being overlooked. I know coming into his career when it was like, oh, this guy might actually be an ace pitcher. It was he was overlooked because of his height. Now he's overlooked because ground ball pitchers, some teams just don't trust as much, especially if you don't have a defense to back it up. And so I understand why he has a chip on his shoulder. The problem is he just has the biggest chip on his shoulder that I've ever seen. I mean, this guy is almost more annoying on Twitter than their Mets owner. And so like I, I, I think I'm like, oh, yeah, I feel bad for him. And then I'm like, no, nah, I don't. I really don't. He, he brings it on himself. I think I think he's a lot to handle. He's definitely quite a personality, <laughs> for sure. I know a lot of people were wanting him to come to the Red Sox, but again, I think it would have been a horrible match just because the Red Sox haven't solved the, the fact that they do not know how to field ground balls. So I don't think yeah. it would have been a, a good match in that way. I think his, I think he would have played in Boston, though. I do think he's got a strong head on his shoulders. He's very outspoken and can take a lot of flack. So that would have worked out, but... I mean, it, the ground balls would not have. So I think that's also probably what happens is a lot of the teams that were willing to pay him that have the defenses to back up had already went and got their guys. One team that stand, stands out is the Cardinals. That would have been a really good fit for him.
Yeah, so. I would have much rather have paid Strowman what he got than Steven Matz if I were the Cardinals. Yeah, I, re- I remember saying that I liked the Matz meet for the Cardinals, but the one pitcher I would have liked more is Strowman. The Cubs in field defense doesn't really project to be that good either. They have Nick Madrigal playing second base. Well, the, do the Cubs project to be good at anything? Um, Not particularly. Not off. Not that I can think of. Maybe slowest average fastball from their starting rotation. <laughs> yeah, I don't I wouldn't put that in the good category. No thanks. <laughs> okay, I have one other MLB thing I want to bring up, and that is related to the lockout. It came out, and this is also circling back to a point you made in a previous podcast, Victor, but it came out that the rule five draft was postponed indefinitely. There is no clear answer on whether it will or will not happen if the lockout comes back. But I have to think that if the lockout takes a while and it gets to the point where lockout ends and the spring training is starting immediately, something in that realm, that they probably won't do the Rule 5 draft. It won't make a lot of sense to try and jam it in there. I think it gets to a point where the season's starting and so they can't do a Rule 5 draft. So my question is for you, do you think that teams, because we were talking about there were some weird decisions about players that were left off the 40-man and left open to the Rule 5 draft. Do you think that teams knew that the lockout was happening and knew that it would probably postpone it maybe to the point where the rule five draft doesn't happen. Do you think teams took more of a risk this year in the players they protected? I, I'm not sure. Uh, It seemed as though uh, the people in the prospect community and the scouting community weren't necessarily expecting the possibility of the rule five draft, not happening to be something that could happen. So Uh, Obviously, teams have better info than people scouting or keeping up with prospects. So there is there is a possibility that they did see this coming, but it does seem like it's something that generally took people by surprise. So I'm not sure. Um, I really don't know. This is probably just me again projecting as a Red Sox fan because we left some pretty good players out there. So. I kind of want it to not happen. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of want to be able to say they left a Gilberto Jimenez unprotected. They did, they did. Yeah, so Heim's taking risks this <laughs> offseason. I think that's the that's the common theme. Heim the risk taker. <laughs> I'm not handling it well. <laughs> All right, are you ready to move on to the NFL? Indeed. Or should I say football? Because my first take is college football i just wanted i don't know if you follow college football at all victor but there are just a couple things that happened that i kind of just wanted to throw out there neither really require immense knowledge of college football they're both just general takeaways i have about the sport of football so the first one is the kenny pickett fake slide so by victor's laughter i'm i'm seeing that he definitely knows what play i'm talking about all i've got to say is that play needs to be illegal it's it was great on Pickett to find the loophole in the rules that he can just fake slide defenders have to stop and he just gets to keep running. If you didn't see the play, the Pittsburgh quarterback against Wake Forest in the AFC in the ACC championship um, is, is scrambling, making a nice run in about midfield. He fake slides all the defenders stop and Pickett continues to run easy touchdown for him. It's, it's ridiculous. I don't know, Victor, do you have any thoughts on this fake slide? If just I should also mention that when a QB is sliding, the reason the defenders were stopping is because if they hit that sliding QB, it's a 15-yard penalty. Yeah, I think it takes a very odd amount of athleticism to be able to pull something like this off. So I could understand why no one in the rulemaking universe had ever thought about this being a possibility. 
But now that we do know it's possible, I think um, I think we have to have some sort of rule where wherever the QB initiates their slide, even if their body isn't down on the ground, that they have to be called down because that play was it was utterly ridiculous that he was able <laughs> to, to get away with something like that. Um, similar to how when a quarterback is in the grasp, the sack is recorded. They don't have to like throw them to the ground. I think something like when you initiate your slide, you're called down, even if your knee technically doesn't hit the ground. So, but yeah, that was, that was a very, very interesting play to watch. That sounds very similar to kind of the rules they already have in place. So it really wouldn't even take that much tweaking to say that I'm pretty sure the rules already say like when they're sliding, it's where they start their slide. That's that's where they're marked down. So they just changed the rules to where you start your slide. That's where you're marked down. And I think that that solves that problem. I think it, it is a problem. I don't get me wrong. I'm not mad at Pickett for doing it. I'm mad at the the ability to do it. But for on Pickett's case, I don't know if it was premeditated. I have a hard time believing it was premeditated because <laughs> it's super hard to fake a slide. Yeah. But even it, no matter what he says, I have a hard time believing it. But it was a genius. It really was a clever play. So that was one college football takeaway. The other one is Georgia ended up getting rolled by Alabama this weekend, a result that shocked a lot of people for all of the season. There's been questions about Alabama and there hasn't been those same questions about Georgia. They were the undisputed number one team in the country until this result. And I think I don't, I wouldn't buy into it. Let me, let me just say, say that. I think this is a case of game theory. So if you look at both teams, Georgia, they know they're in. With a win or loss, Georgia's making it. Alabama does not have the same luxury. There is a possibility that they get in with a loss, especially a close loss. But if they win, they're in. So what I think that means is Alabama's put in a situation where they have to pull out all the stops. They have to use everything they've got in their arsenal, and Georgia does not. And so I think what Georgia did, and I think it's a logical, smart decision, is they kind of just sat back. They didn't show Alabama any of the plays they would use to stop them. They're saving those plays for the college football playoffs. If they do meet, it would be the championship game at this point. But I think Georgia hid everything they have. I think they wanted to see all the plays Alabama would run against them, but they didn't want Alabama to see any of the responses they would have to those plays. I think this game was always built to be a game that Alabama was going to win. And so I really think all the people that are jumping off of the Georgia bandwagon just have some skepticism about it. It just makes sense that Georgia wouldn't try everything they've got this game. They're they're not going to show Alabama how they're going to stop their offense when they know that they could be playing them in a far more important game. I didn't watch the game. I don't watch very much college football, but that argument definitely makes sense if Georgia knows regardless of the result of the game, they're going to be in the playoff. There isn't much point in uh, attempting to go all out in a game that likely won't be determining whether uh, they get into the playoff or not. Exactly what I'm thinking. I thought it was just worth bringing up because it's just an interesting case of game theory um, taking place in the sport of football. So, but now, now we can move on to the NFL. Victor, do you have anything from the NFL you would like to share? Of course. So I saw a tweet from Ben Baldwin. I don't know if you know who that is. He's an NFL analytics I uh, love Twitter ben Baldwin's person. Twitter. I think it's yeah. at Ben B Baldwin for those yeah. wanting to follow. Yes, and he was discussing the MVP race, which I hadn't really thought about uh, prior to seeing that, seeing his tweet thread, really. But uh, he brought up Kyler Murray as a potential uh, candidate for the MVP race. 
I I'm not sure he's really going to get that much consideration given he missed a month um, of football already. But Murray did return yesterday. He looked healthy. He looked good. Scored four touchdowns. It was a pretty easy win for the Cardinals. So maybe he is in the conversation. Um, there was also Tom Brady, Matthew Stafford, and even uh, Aaron Rodgers. Since the the Packers might um, they might get the one seed in the NFC. Um, so I, my question would be is given the uncertainty of Tom Brady, Matthew Stafford, uh, Kyler Murray, all their, the warts that they have in terms of their somewhat inconsistent, inconsistent play. Do you think this could be a year that we see a non QB get serious MVP consideration? The two names that I've seen people most uh, seriously put out there, TJ Watt, who might be who might be able to break the sack record this year and Jonathan Taylor who has been far and away the best running back in the NFL this season. Oh man, that's hard. So the NFL isn't quite at the spot MLB is analytically, but if it was, there would be no way that Jonathan Taylor would win MVP. No matter how good of a season he would have, they just wouldn't vote for a running back, but because the NFL is not quite at that spot yet. I think that that remains a possibility. TJ Watt is interesting because he has missed at least one game, which just it makes it all the more amazing um, the amount of sacks he has. I think he's two up on second place right now. It's like 16 sacks or something. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And I mean, that Steelers team looks like a completely different team with him. So that's also interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure. I, don't, I definitely don't think Matt Stafford has a shot. He has completely fallen off a cliff. I, I've got no, I've got no solid answer for you, Victor. I don't know. What were you thinking? <laughs> um, I mean, if I had to vote today, I think I'd probably vote for Brady, but uh, even his stats don't look like your typical, Oh, this guy's blowing the blowing the barn, the door, the walls off the barns. He's been so incredible. His team is the best in the NFL by far type of MVP. So I did think it was interesting to ponder about, uh, maybe if TJ Watt or Jonathan Taylor, or even Kyler Murray with his missed games could be the MVP. Um, it is probably worth noting that we haven't had a defensive player win MVP since 1986. So the odds for TJ Watt uh, would be incredibly low. We haven't had a non-QB win MVP since I think it was 2012 with Adrian Peterson. So I think it would take, it would probably take Jonathan Taylor a 2000 yard rushing season just to get some consideration but yeah I think it'll be a very interesting race to follow through the end of the season just because no one seems like the clearly the best option in terms of the criteria that people tend to use for MVP I think if the Bucks continue to throw the ball 50 times a game like they did seemingly pointlessly against the Falcons they really did not need to and they came out on their first drive and threw the ball every single play. If they continue with that attitude moving forward, Brady actually might become a runaway MVP. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're nine and three. They also have a shot at that one seed still. Although Arizona looks a lot better with a healthy Kyler Murray. He rushed 10 times, which is a sign he's feeling healthy. He's feeling good. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our pick of Arizona in the Super Bowl, I think, looked a lot better. I know it was the Bears, but healthy Kyler Murray makes that team awesome. So, yeah. It's a very interesting question. I actually, now granted, this was Bill Simmons, who's a massive Patriots fan, but he was trying to push the uh, the narrative that Mac Jones could win the MVP, which is uh, absurd, but shows you the precarious position we're in, if you want to call it that, with the MVP. It could be anyone. Mm-hmm. 
all the candidates have a chance to run away with it. They make a mistake. It seems to knock them out of it, but the other one makes a mistake. The other one gets injured. So I don't know. It is, it, it will be fun. It will be a fun race down the stretch. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. So for me, my next football takeaway, I wanted to talk again about a little bit of game theory, maybe here less explicitly, but the Ravens going for two against the Steelers. So if you miss the game, the Ravens drove down the field and scored a touchdown um, down seven at the, in the fourth quarter time running off the clock and they decide to go for two. Now the analytics community, at least from what I saw was completely torn on this decision. You had people adamantly defending. They should have kicked the extra point and you had people adamantly defending the choice to go for two. The Ravens end up going for two. They draw up a pretty decent play. I'm not sure who to blame. It seems like Lamar didn't make the best throw, but the tight end who was wide open, Mark Andrews, went for the ball with one hand and I it's hard to even say with an outstretched one hand it really looked like he didn't have to reach all too far and it's hard for me to believe that he couldn't have gotten two hands on it but the throw really wasn't that great so I don't know who to blame for the play but even ignoring the potential analytics I just think from a game theory standpoint the Ravens choice to go for two is extremely telling into the Ravens own evaluation of themselves. I do not think that that is a move you make if you are confident that you are a better team than the Steelers. And if you're not confident that you're a better team than the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are pretty middle of the road, uh, as far as it comes in the AFC, I think then it's safe to say the Ravens aren't a legitimate contender at this point in the AFC. Is that an overreaction to a singular play? I just, I just feel like why, why go for two if you're the better team? I think that, um, the Ravens probably are the better team in the long run, but I, in that specific situation, the way that the Steelers had been beating up on their defense late in the game, particularly um, the way Lamar Jackson has been playing these last couple of weeks, ever since he got sick, really, um, I think it could, you could make the argument that the Ravens at this particular low point aren't better than the Steelers. And that could definitely drive your decision to go for two in that spot, even if you think uh, when we get to playoff time, the Ravens are going to be a little better. But uh, now Marlon Humphrey, it seems like he's going to be out for the season. Lamar Jackson still broken. Um, We don't really know what's up with their receiving group. Even Rashad Bateman had no uh, no yards yesterday. They were throwing it at Sammy Watkins. So I don't really know what to think of the Ravens. They kind of feel like they're in that glut. Uh, with the rest of the second tier AFC teams. Um, I, I really don't know. Um, if Lamar Jackson keeps playing like he is right now, though, they're de- definitely not going to be winning <laughs> any playoff games. I think what you said is super key in your defense of the decision, because it is a defendable decision, but only if the Ravens are nervous about how the Steelers have been performing that game, how their own performance is trending. That is concerning. And the uh, the only other real argument I've heard is the Ravens did have a couple key injuries. So you already mentioned Marlon Humphrey. He got injured during the game. He's out for the season. That's a big loss for them. They also lost uh, one of their own linemen, Patrick McCarry. We don't know how long he's going to be out for, but it's going to be multiple games from what I'm seeing. And so a lot of people are saying, of course, the Ravens had to go for it because of those two injuries. Even if that's true, that's still concerning for the rest of the season. So I think any way you cut it, ignoring if the decision was right or wrong, you only make that decision if your team 
does not have the chops to compete with the Patriots, to compete with the Bills, to compete with the Chiefs at the top of the AFC. I think if you're a Ravens fan, that one decision to going for two, I for going for two, I immediately red flags up everywhere. I am like, wait a minute, hold on. Even the Ravens are telling us they don't believe they're legitimate. This is a team that was holding the number one seed in the AFC before this game. Yeah, the Ravens season has it's really been um they've had a tough time getting going early in games for sure. Uh, they've had a lot of comeback wins. They've had to pull out wins in very precarious situations. And I, I do think that kind of caught up to them in this game. Um, it was kind of incredible, even that they were able to drive down the field with no timeouts, less than two minutes left and score that touchdown. But uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what to think about the Ravens at this point. Do you have one other NFL takeaway, Victor? Yes. Uh, so my other takeaway, uh, I might be a little biased because I had a lot of fantasy players in the Thursday night Saints versus Cowboys game. But watching that game, I, I was kind of perplexed about why Taysom Hill got an extension uh, from the Saints. Um, he, oh, yeah, uh, that was crazy. <laughs> obviously, he, he played very poorly, especially in the second half of that game after he had injured his finger. Um, I'm not sure. Obviously there was some part of him being unable to throw the ball with that was the finger injury, but it's not like he was ever much of a passer in the first place. But I think what it comes down to more to me is, is a special teamer and wild wildcat part-time quarterback worth $10 million a year into his thirties. Um, that's what he's supposed to be paid if he isn't the quarterback, if he does become the starting quarterback, then his contract could go up to 90 million. But I think it's pretty clear. He likely isn't going to be a long-term answer at the quarterback position for the Saints. So I'm not really sure the role that Taysom Hill is good at is even worth the $10 million that um, they're going to be paying him throughout. I think it was a four year extension. Uh, so I, it really just put a spotlight on how odd of a decision that was and also it brought to light um what is the saints long-term plan at quarterback obviously Jameis winston tore his acl and is a free agent at the end of this season are they going to bring him back are they going to try and draft somebody from a weak class in the middle of the first round uh could they trade up and try and get someone like kenny pickett who we discussed earlier um yeah i don't know i think that the Taysom hill extension was very interesting in that there are a lot of layers in this that are just very weird to think about it's not really something we've seen before in the nfl the decision to extend him the amount they're paying him is really in, indefensible i think there's no argument for it i think it's a man in sean payton that has too much pride and is unwilling to admit he's wrong you're going to be wrong, dude. All the best guy, all the best guys. Bill Belichick is wrong all the time, but he's willing to admit when he's wrong. He's willing to move on for from a player very quickly. Some people think too quickly, but Bill Belichick largely praised for his willingness to move on from players. Sean Payton is locked in on this Taysom Hill guy. Now, I will say in Hill's defense, if you watch him pre- uh, finger injury and post finger injury he looked like a different player throwing the football but even when he looked good the whole time I was watching I was like I couldn't believe it I was in, I was incredulous to this idea that he could throw the ball we haven't seen him do it and it wasn't like the throws were necessarily impressive he did have one interception on a pretty good throw 
but he threw it into triple coverage. So yes, it was a ball that should have been caught. And yes, it was an amazing throw on the dime. But the reason you don't throw it into triple coverage is because if that ball's not caught, it's picked. So the decision-making isn't even really there as a thrower. And then of course, post finger injuries, under throwing everyone, he throws three interceptions. He had the most wild fantasy day I've ever seen. He went from borderline QB one to three, like three straight turnovers to, Oh my goodness. He's a QB one again, because he gets a garbage time touchdown. This like crossing route to Deontay Johnson. who's a punt returner. Deontay Harris. Deontay Harris. Sorry. I should know that he he's a D two football player in the school. I went to's conference. So we saw him play every year, but he, I mean, he's a punt returner. He looks like a punt returner on that play. I had nothing to do with Taysom Hill. So it's it is questionable he's electric as a runner like his hurdle of that player electric but like you're saying you don't pay that guy 10 million dollars to be a wildcat quarterback to do that once a game that makes no sense it's fun to watch but it doesn't help your team all all too much i mean ugh, it's gross it's a gross one i mean even like peyton doubling and tripling down on this idea that Taysom hill could be a quarterback of an nfl team is just it's just so weird as an, as an ordinary human being, I relate to it. I have these moments where I double and triple down on being wrong. But when you're an NFL coach, when you're elite at what you do, you can't, you can't be doing this, man. Move on. But you can't move on now. I mean, it went too far. Actually, how much of that money was guaranteed? I always forget. In the I NFL. think it was around 22, $22 million. Okay. That's, uh, that's actually not great for them still. But in the NFL, they, they are kind of able to be like, ah, see ya, and not pay them. It's a little weird. <laughs> But 22 million guaranteed. So that's still a lot for, I mean, like you're saying, he was, was he like, he was even like at points the third string quarterback this season. Yeah, so. he was behind Trevor Simeon. I think part of that was because Hill had been injured prior earlier in the season. But yeah, when Winston got hurt, they went immediately to Trevor Simeon, who is also not <laughs> very good. Oh, it's not good. I mean, we just watched uh, Gardner Minshew light it up for the Eagles and an offense that he's never run the Eagles. If you don't know, are running the Oklahoma offense for Jalen hurts. Minshew shows up. I don't know if they change their offense or it looks pretty different. Yeah. There wasn't much read option either way. It's impressive that they changed their offense that fast, but I don't, I mean, Simeon was never going to have a game like Minshew just had. So mm-hmm. that's well, telling to be fair to Simeon. He was able to come in the second half and beat the box. So he has one, one highlight for his season. The, the, the Bucks against the Saints are like the 49ers versus the, the Seahawks. Seahawks, like the Seahawks versus the Rams. Like, I don't know. <laughs> They're just teams that own other teams. The Saints have always been good against the Bucks, at least since Brady joined the team. Now, the Bucks do have that playoff win, but uh, I mean, it was close. The, the important game, really. Yeah. That's I, and that's all that matters. I mean, going back to that's why Georgia only cares about the playoff game versus Alabama. They, <laughs> they could care less about that regular season game. Maybe maybe it's similar for the Bucks. I don't know. All right, one final thing in the NFL. Unless, unless do you have anything else? Nope. Okay, I think it would be fun if we ranked the current win streaks in the NFL. Is this an excuse again for me to secretly pay? Uh, praise the Patriots who are on the longest win streak in the NFL and to continue to question the Chiefs who are on the second longest win streak in the NFL? Yes, it is. But I still think it will be a lot of fun. So we have four teams I've included here. You mu- I did teams with a winning streak of at least four games. So starting from the bottom, the football team has a four-game win streak. The Dolphins have a five-game win streak. The Chiefs also have a five-game win streak. And the Patriots have a six 
game win streak. Now we've done something similar where we power ranked the bad losses in the NFL. I learned from that a little bit. And I think what could be helpful here is we talk about the team and then give them a grade then, and then compare the grades at the end, instead of talking about each team and then trying to go from memory, which teams we thought were best. So let's go ahead and start with the football team. Their four-game win streak was a 29-19 win versus the Bucks off Bucks by. At the time, that looked like a super bad loss for the Bucks, but as the playoff or the football team now sitting in the sixth spot in the playoffs, maybe not as bad of a loss as we once thought. So that was their first win. Then they had a 27 to 21 victory at Carolina. Then they had back-to-back 17 to 15 victories, one at home against the Seahawks and one on the road against the Raiders. How would you grade this four-game win streak? I think I'd probably give it a B plus, something like that. I I didn't think the Washington football team were going to have any type of relevant season, but it seems now um, their defense has gotten better from how bad it was early in the season. Uh, Taylor Heineke is making less mistakes. And now that Antonio Gibson's healthy, they have uh, more of a balanced offense, more of a running game. So I think uh, the football team has actually kind of impressed me with the way they've played this last month or so. I'm a little surprised to hear you give them a B plus. It is only four games and it was a 17 to 17, 15 victories. I don't like neither is that. Um, impressive to me just like looking mm-hmm. at it was 17 to 15 and the Seahawks with a at the time still not fully healthy Russ and that was I believe the football team was coming off a bye so I believe that was a few weeks ago so Russ was even less healthy then and then they just coming off the bye I might have that totally wrong I hope I don't but 17 15 victory at Las Vegas who is just a team that's I didn't just don't think is very good some people do but I don't but are you giving them B plus mostly because it's the football team? So you're surprised they're doing it? Or do you think any team in a vacuum, any team you would give a B plus with those four wins? Uh, I think I'm kind of grading on a curve here that it's a team that I think is legitimate or thought was legitimately horrible. And now they look pretty good. So, yeah, so I'm let's not give sure. them a grade based off of ignore that. They're the Washington football team. If any team had gone on this, this win streak, I'd probably say a C plus or B then. Because the the Bucks win was definitely impressive. They were they were able to dominate in terms of time of possession for that game. But uh, as you alluded to, if a team like the Titans or the Ravens or the Chiefs went on this type of winning streak, uh, it wouldn't be that impressive. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna put you down here for a C plus and a B slash B. So maybe as we get more clarity on these other win streaks, you can adjust that, but I'm going to go ahead and go with a C because I think every time you're doing this thing where you're grading something before knowing the rest of your grades, you always have to start with a C, even if it ends up the best, it's just the safest pit. I can go up from here. I can go down from here. So I'm leaving mm-hmm. myself room. I'm giving it a C. I think the bucks win is impressive. I think the next three less impressive. So The Dolphins, they have a five-game winning streak. It started with a 17-9 victory at home versus the Texans, then a 22-10 win versus the Ravens, then a 24-17 win at the Jets, then a 33-10 whomping of the Carolina Panthers, and then this week a 20-9 victory at home against the Giants. It's one game longer. Does that give them bonus points? They also played Carolina. Yeah, a little bit. I kind of... I'm kind of feeling more of a solid B here than 
than um, the C plus B line. I think um, obviously being able to beat the Dolphins, uh, beat the Ravens, looked like an impressive win at the time, although the Ravens look like a team that's not great <laughs> anymore. Um, a lot of the wins in that in this streak were pretty close games against bad teams, the Giants, the Texans. Uh, they were able to destroy the Panthers, but I think most of this win streak has been an improved defense, but their offense has still been relatively lackluster. They still don't have a running game, and their uh, receiving group um, has still been uh, pretty injured throughout this time, and Tua has one of the, uh, I think, uh, lowest intended air yards per pass attempt in the league. So they're kind of dinking and dunking their way and playing defense into wins, which um, can be somewhat sustainable, but I don't think it's overtly impressive. I mean, it's a strategy that works when you're playing the Texans, the Jets, the Panthers, and the Giants. They mm -hmm. did beat the Ravens, and we talked a lot about the Ravens, how they are low-key a little bit fraudulent, but that is that is an impressive win. I think it isn't quite as impressive as the football team's 29 to 19 win against the Bucks when the Bucks were coming off of a bye. So I give the football team a little edge there. However, when the Dolphins beat the Panthers, Panthers 33 to 10 and the football team only beats them 27 to 21. That's major points, I think, in favor of the Dolphins. So since I gave the football team a C, I am going to give the Dolphins a B. It's one game longer. The Ravens win, although not as impressive to me as the Bucks, it's comparable. They had the way more impressive win against the Carolina Panthers. So I'm going with a B for the Dolphins as well. So it sounds like we both give them a B. Now that brings us to the Chiefs, where I, we could diverge here. I have pretty controversial opinion in general about what I think of the Chiefs winning streak. I've been calling it a fake winning streak. I think it still is a fake winning streak, but let's see if Victor agrees. So it started off with a 20 to 17 win against the Giants. As a reminder, the Dolphins just beat the Giants 20 to 9. Just keep that in mind, Victor. Am I, I'm already trying to influence you. You're going to see I'm going to be trying to influence you this whole time. 13 to 7 win against the Packers. Oh, good. It's the Packers. The Jordan Love led Packers still 13 7. Okay, six point win, low scoring game 41 to 14, crushing at Las Vegas. Divisional game. Vegas has been known to put up some strong fights against the Chiefs, but Vegas is coming off the Gruden firing and then the rug situation. Then one other thing, I forget what happened. There was all a lot to handle all at once, and they kind of fell apart. It was a close game until the third quarter. That brings us to the 19-9 win against the Cowboys and then a 22-9 game last night against the Broncos. And if you watch the game, it was really the Chiefs defense winning the game for them. The Broncos had 404 yards versus the Chiefs 267. The Broncos had 5.6 yards per play. The Chiefs only had 4.9. The difference in the game was the Broncos had three turnovers, one of which was a pick six and the Chiefs only had one. The defense is looking good. The, the offense to me still looks horrible, but in general, Victor, what do you think of this, this win streak five games, just like the dolphins? Yeah, I think I'd probably give it a C plus. Uh, I think it's worse than the dolphins win streak. Um, for those who uh, can't see, I just did the evil fingers thing. Cause I, <laughs> Victor has fallen for my ploy. He's giving him a C plus. Yeah, I think this win streak is worse than the Dolphins' uh, win streak. Um, just a lot of games in this 
streak where the Chiefs offense didn't do much of anything. Uh, they struggled against the Giants. They struggled um, this past week against the Broncos. They weren't particularly effective against the Cowboys either offensively. Uh, they weren't very good against the Packers offensively. And even in that Raiders game, uh, it was a lot of short passes. A while. It was a lot of dink and dunks. Uh, I think Daryl Williams was the Chiefs' best receiver in that game. Uh, so I think this winning streak um, is encouraging to see how their defense has been able to respond to their offense not being very effective. But generally, I don't think it has been enough um, we have seen enough from the offense to really take this winning streak as seriously as we might um, another team on a similar winning streak. Do you think it is a better winning streak than the football teams who you also gave a C plus? Um, yeah, I think the five versus four would probably edge it out for me. I think being able to hold the Cowboys offense to nine points, um, it, did it impressed me pretty much um uh, it, it did impress me um although they were missing amari cooper and cd lamb in the second half uh but i digress uh yeah i think the five versus four aspect is probably going to be the main tiebreaker for me in this between the washington football team and the chiefs i think i agree with you as much as i came here wanting to give the chiefs the worst grade i think it's one game longer again and they have beaten some impressive teams the defense really has balled out this whole win streak the defense went from something that people were questioning to now the strength of the team which is concerning Mm -hmm. in its own right but there is some legitimacy to how the defense is playing i don't think it's better than the dolphins win streak so i'll go ahead and go with you i'll go with c plus that brings us finally to the longest win streak in the NFL. And Victor, you're going to have, you're going to have to finally do it. You're going to have to give in the Patriots six games, one game longer than both uh, all these other teams. It was a 54 to 13 victory against the jets. Wow. Amazing. Then it was 27, 24 at the chargers. Okay. Then it was 24 to six at Carolina. Then it was 45 to seven versus the Browns. 25 to nothing at Atlanta. And then finally, 36 to 13 versus your Tennessee Titans. Victor, it's an A. Can you even say something otherwise? Um, uh, probably not. I'll, I will say, uh, sounds like some of the competition in there, <laughs> not the greatest, but um, if you're dropping 54 points or 45 points on an NFL team, you definitely deserve a lot of credit for uh, how the team played. So, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely an A um, for a win streak of six games with this many blowouts. It's kind of shocking, really. I agree. I'm going to give it an A. I think you're, you're dealt the cards you're given, and they absolutely crushed all the bad teams. And now people, once again, are starting to think the Chargers are good. That was their, that was their one close win in this stretch. They're beating people by, I keep saying it's like an average score of 35 to 10. It's, it's an insane streak, no matter who they're playing. So that's obviously the best. I don't know if we necessarily need to give it an A and a plus whatever. It's clearly better than the other ones, but the final rankings for us go Patriots best. The dolphins a little bit shocking coming out of nowhere who have actually beaten the Patriots this year coming in second best. Here come the dolphins bad for us, Victor in our eliminator game. (laughs) Then we have the chiefs and finally the football team. The football team has the most fraudulent winning streak to be expected. It's only four games. It gets more impressive as it gets longer. 
But the Chiefs mm. may be less impressive than uh, people are indicating by so adamantly saying the Chiefs are back. Definitely. All right. Well, I just hinted at it. That finally brings us to our last thing. We do it every week. It's our eliminator game. Last week on the podcast, Christian McCaffrey was ruled out for the season after we had long debated if we were going to rule the Panthers out. We decided against it. We rolled the dice and picked the Steelers. And basically everything since that moment has gone poorly for us, starting with the McCaffrey entry out of the season. The Steelers then win the game. Every team in front of them that wasn't in a playoff spot lost. So like the Steelers now sit in eighth, I believe. A huge jump that I didn't think was going to happen so easily for them. I mean, the, oh, the good for us. 49ers lose bad for us. Football team wins and Vikings lose. So the 49ers remain in the playoffs and another team we have already eliminated the football team in the sixth spot. Now, Victor, it could not be going worse for us right now. I, I, is there even a way to salvage this? Do we just start eliminating the worst teams? It's, I mean, we're probably going to eliminate the Panthers. There's not much of a discussion there, but there is some discussion to be having about how quickly things have gone from really good to really bad for us here. Yeah, um, I will say I think a team that I could be eyeing in the next couple of weeks are the Browns, depending on how they play uh, in the next week. Uh, Baker Mayfield and his injuries, it doesn't seem like he's going to get much better throughout the rest of the season. And um, they're currently in last place, obviously six and six. They're still in it. But yeah, it's going to it's going to be uh, slim pickings until some Hopefully some teams start to separate themselves a little bit here. Uh, looking in the AFC, they're what five teams with six wins. The Bengals, Chargers, Colts have seven wins. Bills have seven wins. It's, it's way too tight to be, to be picking, picking right now. Yeah. We were saying before the podcast, you were making the point that this has really been the worst year ever to play this game. It's just, it's becoming a mess. Everyone is so close remember when the most of our problems were the Falcons were have holding the seventh spot. Oh, how the tables have turned. The Falcons now only have a 5% chance of making the playoffs, mm. but yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. We got to keep an eye on the Browns. We also obviously got to keep an eye on the Broncos after their loss last night. This is a team that's already shown some signs of wanting to phone it in by trading Von Miller. Then their offense just isn't able to show up last night against the chiefs. Some really costly turnovers. Bridgewater, clearly not the answer for a team that otherwise seems to have a great player in every other position. It really is a great roster, except yeah. quarterback. It's kind of kind of tough. It's tough sledding for the Broncos. Can't find the answer. Elway, a quarterback himself, seems to know how to get a good player in every position, but the most important one, the one that he should understand the best. I don't know what's going on there, but they're definitely a team to be keeping an eye on. But I think we'll eliminate the Panthers because like the Broncos, they have started showing signs of phoning it in. They just fire Wonder Kid, Wonder Keen. I don't know how to say the word. You know what I'm talking about. Joe Brady, he's fired. A really strange move, almost seeming like they're trying to have a scapegoat. This is kind of telling for like the, the state and the problems the league is having as a whole. But I was waiting all day for to hear what controversial thing Joe Brady said or inappropriate thing he did after he was fired. It really was like that out of the blue for me. Nothing has come out since. I'm still left questioning why. It could be because I don't know if you saw, but Matt Rule had some quotes floating out there about how much he wants to run the ball. He started saying those things like our analytics department has found that when we run the ball for 180 yards, we always win. And when we run the ball 30 times, we always win. And that's awful. It's that's not 
that is not correct analytics. It's, it's not understanding the, the relationship between winning games and running the football. You run the football because you're winning the game. So of course you're going to have more runs in a game you win, dude. I mean, maybe Brady, Joe Brady was pushing against that. He was the OC. So mm-hmm. they're a team that seems like they're having some inner turmoil. Maybe at the very least they're firing people seems to be an indication that the season is over. And of course happened on the podcast last week. They're, rock of their offense this team that now wants to run the ball 35 plus times a game they don't even have their running back he's out for the season McCaffrey as he goes to the IR for the second time this season making him automatically ineligible to return the remainder of the season it's the Panthers slam dunk right Victor yep uh it sounds like Matt Rule might need a little lesson on causation versus correlation uh but yeah I once once Christian McCaffrey got placed on IR I, I think it was pretty clear to both of us that the Panthers, uh, they're, they're not going to be in this at the end of the season. I believe that leaves us with just the Vikings and the Eagles, who we need to somehow get ahead of the 49ers and the football team because we've eliminated the 49ers and the football team. Hey, you, all of you listening, you would have too in the weeks that we did it. Like there was no way you were keeping them, especially the football team. Like I, I don't even want to hear it. Like, we're we're basically conceding that we're gonna start we're gonna start missing some teams here. But yeah, it would have it would have been nice if the Eagles could have beat the Giants and the Vikings could have beat the Lions. I think that would have helped us a little bit. I was I mean, this week could not have gone worse. Other than the 49ers losing, when the 49ers lost, I was like, ah, oh, perfect. Here things go correctly, and then it was just downhill from there. Or maybe I just wasn't realizing how bad the early morning games were for us too. Oh man. Well. <laughs> that's our show <laughs> and ending on a downer there i told you my head's all over the place today i'm very excited for the patriots game tonight but as always you can find both of us on twitter i'm at ut streamer victor is at awesome victor aa i think i finally mm-hmm. got it right yes he's giving me the, the thumbs up um but be sure to follow us there you can send us questions uh, for the pod if you want them answered there Um, Be sure to subscribe to the pod as always leave a review only if it's good and ending it once again today on a go Patriots as they play the bills. Victor, you got anything you want to say to the people? I'll be watching tonight. I hope it's a good game. The weather is going to, is supposed to be really, really bad. So maybe we get another bucks versus Patriots type of game. I think that bad weather might favor the Patriots. I'm a little excited there. The Patriots are the team that's significantly more competent at running the football. It's not close. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I'm very excited for the game, but I'm very nervous. This is the moment when I actually find out if the Patriots are legit. Yes, we can throttle bad teams, but can we beat actually good teams? A team that me and Victor picked to go to the Super Bowl. Not the most confident pick. Uh, I should probably mention that. Not by me. I, I, I think I called it trash <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> Tra- trash choice. I really, really yeah. wanted the Patriots. But the uh, Vegas agrees with us. I, I told Victor after because we were not feeling good. I, was, I, I just said we're going to end the podcast here. We keep going. But <laughs> the Bills and we picked the Bills and the Cardinals. And Vegas has them. If you, if you look at Ben Baldwin, he's the one who tweets this out. But he goes through and he finds the market-derived power rankings. So based on the spreads that Vegas is setting, the two best teams in the NFL are in fact the Cardinals and the bills who we picked in the Super Bowl. And on top of that, if you break it down by teams who um, their EPA on offense versus defense, you graph it out. Ben Baldwin also does this guess who's at the top of those charts. 
It's the Bills and the Cardinals. Now, the problem with the Bills is their easy cake schedule. They also haven't beaten a good team. So it's really a it's mm-hmm. a it's a prove it game for both teams. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And we're saying all this, and I'm realizing we're going to release the podcast after the game. <laughs> so people will be knowing at this point who won. Uh, I hope it was that, the that's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, bad podcasting 101, but the rest of it, I think we, I hopefully provided some good content, some uh, good laughs, and some good uh, banter. <laughs> Always.